Amen, amen. Hey, if you would, grab a Bible, get with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in a seat back in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, please leave with that. That is our gift to you. And if you're newer to navigating the Bible, uh, we're finishing up a series and a little book towards the back of that Bible called the book of 1 Timothy. And so uh, get a copy of God's Word in front of you. Next week, we end this series in 1 Timothy. And uh, we begin uh, our summer series in two weeks called Parables, the Stories of Jesus. And so we're going to be walking through some different parables throughout uh, the course of the summer. I'm so excited uh, for that time, and I I know it'll be a blessing to us as we uh, study those out here. But I want to say, um, I I just want to say thank you to you all. Since this year began, uh, we have uh, have preached through two series, uh, uh, seven letters, uh, through the seven letters in the book of Revelation, and then the book of 1 Timothy. And why I want to say thank you to you is because I think, especially like in our Christian cultural environment, we are so used to teaching that's like, that's so centered on like, what's this have to do with me? What's this have to do with me? What's this have to do with me? And, and there's, there's a place for that that's so necessary that we're personally applying the word of God. But so much of our teaching this year is focused on what's this have to do with we, right? How, how do we seek to live out what God has called the church to be and the church to look like? And you all have leaned into this uh, so intentionally, and I am so thankful for that. But 1 Timothy really is this book that equips us to be, to live as the household of God. And, and why we wanted to spend so much time on it is because as we got into a beautiful new uh, building that God has given to us and as, and as our church has grown throughout the years, we need to understand something desperately. Are you ready for what we need to understand desperately? This isn't just an event we attend. And, and Redeemer Bible Church isn't just an organization that we're part of. Uh, it, it, when you think about events, uh, a couple weeks ago, Erica and I went down to the amphitheater in Indianapolis to a concert with, I think, like half the church. How many of you were at the Ben Rector concert that weekend, right? We just kept running into Redeemer people after Redeemer people. And you look at the masses of people there and you say, oh, we are all here because there's an affinity for the singer or the band. Or you think about what's going to happen at a big racetrack down the road here today where massive amounts of people are going to come because they resonate with racing. We're not here gathered around an affinity. We're gathered as family around the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so that's why like, regardless of age category or regardless of different walks of life, what unifies us here is that we are family blood bought by the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And, 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 and now this book has been about how do we seek to actually live as family? What does that look like? And in this part of the letter we're in right here, there's this running theme. It's a theme of honor. Uh, last week we looked that, uh, at this reality that the family, the household of God, is to honor widows. And we spent some time unpacking that. Uh, today, this theme of honor continues. And, and really this theme of honor centers on what does it look like for us as a family to honor the authority that God has put in place in our lives? But before we specifically look at how this honor gets lived out, we need to talk about what honor is. When the Bible brings up this word of honor, it, it, it literally means to esteem or to value or to respect. 
And, and, as we, and as we walk through uh, those God calls us to honor, I, I want us to understand that what God is seeking to do in our hearts is to create a heart of honor inside of us. So not just the functions or the nice words of honor, but how does God create a heart that honors those in which God has called us to honor? Because when we honor those God has called us to honor, God is ultimately honored. And that's what we're getting after today. And so um, uh, today we look at what does it look like for us to honor the elders in our church? And by elders, I mean those that the book has already unpacked as the overseers, uh, uh, the leaders in our church. And what does it look like for us to honor uh, the, 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 the workplace authority that God has put over us as well? And so the big idea for today is this. Honor your elders in the church and your bosses at work. Lord, help us, right? Lord, help us, right? Let's pray and ask for his help, and we'll get into it. Father, we do ask for your help. We want to live out We want to live out what your word calls us to. And so, God, I pray your word is clear now. I pray you would hide the preacher behind the authority of your word. And, Lord, it would go out clearly in power by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look here. First thing I want us to write down is this. We're to honor the elders in the church. We are to honor the elders in the church. And if you're just jumping into it with us to this book, the book has already, First Timothy has already unpacked for us what this whole idea of elders are. Elders are the overseers in a church, uh, the spiritual leadership that God appoints into a local church setting. Now, the book's going to help us, or Paul, the writers of it, is going to help us understand what does it look like for us as a household to live uh, in a way that honors elders. Verse 17, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure." No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some, which are uh, the sins of some people, are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Uh, there, there's three, three things from this paragraph I want us to pull out of what it looks like for us to honor the elders in our church. The, the first thing I want to pull out is this. We are willing to pay elders for their work. Now, some of you should go, Pastor, where'd you get that? Well, it's very clear what Paul's doing when he starts here in verse 17. It says, let the elders who rule, rule well be considered worthy. And what's it say there? Yeah, you can be confident in it. It's okay, right? Of double honor. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Uh, Throughout Paul's writing in the New Testament, you'll see from time to time his defense of, of payment for Christian workers. 
Uh, you see him uh, uh, refer here to Deuteronomy chapter 34. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Uh, Paul has also quoted Deuteronomy 34 when he brings up the same topic in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians 9, it says this, Do I uh, say these things on human authority? Does not the law say uh, the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does uh, he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Paul's making an argument there that uh, it's proper, it's biblical for Christian workers to be paid for their labor in Christian work. And we here as a church, we have paid elders. We call them pastors. Uh, their, their, their vocational uh, living comes from the gospel work. We also have a team of staff that works. And their, their paid living comes from the gospel work. Uh, Paul also here quotes uh, what Jesus says. He says, the, the laborer deserves his wages. Quoting what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10. And so when, when Paul says... Uh, to the elders who serve well, they're worthy of double honor. It's literally this idea that uh, those elders are worthy of your respect. They're worthy of your honor. And they're also worthy of being supported from their work for the gospel work that they're doing. Now, I want to be very, very clear. The implication here is that those elders are working. If you shall not work, you shall not eat. And so when it says here, let the elders who rule well... It also says that especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. They're doing what in preaching and teaching? They're laboring. They're working. I always love those pastors who say, like, you actually prepare your sermons? I just get up there and let the Spirit lead. And I said, how's that going for you? Now, that's not a statement that the Holy Spirit cannot lead in the moment, but I believe uh, is strongly that the Holy Spirit can lead your prep as it begins on Monday morning, journeying all the way in labor to Sunday morning. That the, the one called to herald the word of God, just like all of you get up and go to work every week, the ministers of the gospel who are getting their living from the preaching of the word and the ministry of the word, they got to get up and work. Let's go to work for the kingdom. And so this idea here is that those who are, 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 are serving the household as paid elders and, and, and those serving the household in the preaching and teaching ministry to the household are to labor. They are to work. So Paul's first thing that he wants us to understand, what's it look like to honor the elders in the household? He, he makes this argument that it is proper, it's biblical. For some of us in our midst, we have lay elders that aren't paid for their service to the church, and we have paid elders in the form of pastors who are paid, and there's biblical precedent for that in the household of God. But this isn't the only thing he brings up in this passage of how we're to honor elders in our household. The, the second part of the, the paragraph I want to bring out here is this. We don't admit charges against elders lightly. We, one of the ways we honor elders is we don't admit charges against elders lightly. Look at what it says in verse 19. It says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so uh, Paul is putting some, some protections in place for the good of the household. 
The idea here is that someone who's honked off at an elder, you like that phrase, honked off? Someone who's honked off at an elder cannot just uh, uh, lob unsubstantiated grenades seeking to discredit them in a way that harms the whole household. And so there's some protections Paul puts in place here, God puts in place here, uh, for those who serve the household in the role or the office of elder. That an accusation that comes against them, a charge that comes against them, is to be substantiated by two or three witnesses. There should be multiple witnesses to substantiate that. That, 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 that charges would not be brought lightly. But just as Paul's putting some protection in place that charges aren't brought lightly against elders, he's not arguing that elders are, that have immunity, that, that you, you, you can't bring charges, that if an elder is living in sin, they must be confronted. Because one of the, the far extreme dangers of this is when, uh, when the people of God have been taught that you can't bring a charge against, uh, against often what you'll hear in, in, in certain circles of the church, the anointed one. No, God puts in place how an elder who's living in sin is to be confronted. Look at what he says in verse 20. He says, as for those who persist in sin, what, what are they to do? Rebuke them in the presence of, of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And then, like, that's heavy, right? That's heavy enough. But then there's some, there's some heavy words even after that in verse 21 that get piled on in a good way. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without what? Without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. And so there's, 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 uh, there's a, a system in place, there's a process in place of what we're to do for elders who are living in sin and are persisting in sin. Those elders who have been, who have been welcomed in to a very public position of church leadership, if they are living in sin and persisting in sin, they are to be rebuked for their sin in a very public way. Now, the, the verse here has some, grammatical, um, has some grammatical structure here that leads you to try to figure out, okay, what is Paul saying here? When he says in verse 20 that those elders who persist in sin are to re- be rebuked in the presence of them all, is he referring to a rebuke in the presence of all the elders? Or is, he, or is he talking about a rebuke in the presence of all of the household, of all of the church? Now, you and I can disagree on this because really smart, godly people, biblical scholars disagree on the structure of this. I believe what verse 20 says is those elders who persist in sin are to re- be rebuked in the presence of the household. And the purpose of that public household rebuke is to be so that the rest the rest of the elders may stand in fear. This is weighty. And Lord, protect us from ever having to go through it. Amen? 
But I, I, I want us to understand the two sides of this. Paul, Paul is saying one of the ways we honor elders is we don't bring an accusation. We don't bring charges against them lightly. There must be multiple witnesses to substantiate this. But elders, are, they don't have immunity. If they're persisting in sin, they're to be rebuked in the presence of all so that the rest of the elders may stand in fear of the calling in which God has called them to the office of overseer. But there's a, a third part of this, of how do we honor elders. And the, and the third part to this paragraph is this. We don't appoint elders too quickly. One of the ways that we honor the office of elder is to not appoint elders too quickly. Look at what it says in verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. And then he has a word here to, to Timothy. Remember, Paul is writing this letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, and we come to like a, a personal assertion from a spiritual father to a spiritual son. He says, keep yourself pure. Now, <clears throat> he wants to give some specific instruction to Timothy here, and you have that in the parenthetical in your Bible. And I believe why Paul, I, I don't believe this is just out of nowhere, like, oh, yeah, and I forgot this. Uh, mix a little wine with your water for your stomach. I, I think this is flowing here in what Paul's talking about. He's, ple he's telling Timothy, he's urging Timothy, keep yourself pure. And I believe Timothy is living at that out. So much so that Timothy is being very, very careful with the subject of alcohol. With his interaction with alcohol. And Paul is giving him some freedom here to go. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and frequent ailments. He's literally giving him, he, he's prescribing to Timothy, this will help you. But now back to, the, back to the thrust of the argument. The sins of some people, this is why you're not hasty in the laying on of hands. The sins of some people are conspicuous. What does that mean? Evident, evident to all, a, 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 apparent, quickly. The sins of some people are conspicuous. Meaning there's some people that you go, yeah, no, like they're not, they're not ready to serve in the office of elder, office of overseer. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear, appear what? Appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. And so uh, Paul gives some instruction here to honor the office of, of overseer and saying, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Do not be hasty in appointing men into the position of overseer. Why? Because, you know, it, it's obvious to us that the sins of some people are like, whoa, no, they're not ready. But he says the sins of others appears only after time. And this is why those who serve the household as an elder must be time-tested. Now, let me tell you where churches get into trouble with this. Here's where I think churches get into trouble with this. Here's why I think it's, it's tempting at times for the household to lay hands too quickly to appoint elders. And what happens is when someone's giftedness is so off the charts high. It could be a gifted leader, gifted connector, gifted teacher. When their giftedness is so off the charts high, but their character is not quite in pace with their giftedness, the giftedness can blind us of some of the character deficiencies that might be there. 
and we see super gifted people and we point them into positions of spiritual leadership. And listen to me now, the enemy loves to feast on the gap there. The enemy loves to feast on the gap. Like one of, one of my prayers has been, God, don't let the giftedness outpace the character. Because the enemy will feast on that gap. And so we have to be biblical in our approach when we are appointing elders to oversee the household that we're always prayerful and slow and diligent. And I, I, I believe, like before you, I commend the elder process that our elders have put in place. I do believe it's slow. I do believe it's careful. But this is so important because, listen to me, to appoint someone into uh, the office of elder too quickly, it's not good for them and it's not good for the church. And so Paul is putting some, some guardrails in place here to say, this is what it looks like for us to honor, honor the elders, honor the office of elder. And he unpacks that in this paragraph. Now, that's, that's what it looks like to honor the spiritual authority and the household of God. But then Paul's got something to say about what it looks like to honor uh, Alistair Begg. He's a preacher out of Cleveland. I, I love, I'm really thankful for his ministry. He, he, he calls it the industrial, the industrial authority. What's it look like for us to honor industrial authority, workplace authority? That this is deeply on the heart of God. Look at what it says as chapter 6 begins. 1 Timothy 6 verse 1. He says, let all who are under a yoke as what? Bondservants. we got to deal with that word here, and we will in a minute. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Second point to the message is this. We're to honor bosses in the workplace. Now, good Bible studiers, I'm calling you that, good Bible students, you should have a very important question that gets to the heart of how we study our Bibles. How is he making an application of how we're to live with the workplace authority in our life with a reference and a command to what's called bondservants in that day. And so throughout the New Testament, we come across this topic. When we preached through the book of Ephesians this past fall, we came across this topic. What do we do when the Bible is, is guiding and giving some commands to Christian bondservants at how, as to how they are to honor the Lord. Uh, uh, Gavin Ortland, I read this quote when we uh, walked through the book of Ephesians. Uh, Gavin Ortland says this, and it's a bit of an extended quote, so stay here with me. And I'm going to turn this way because my eyes aren't good enough to read it there. When we read verses like Ephesians 6.5, Colossians 3.22, and 1 Peter 2.18... We hear the common English translation slave or bondservant in light of our own historical context. We typically think of race-based chattel slavery in which the slave is the property of the master and lacks any legal rights. This kind of slavery is manifestly among the most despicable institutions ever to disgrace human civilization. It is not, however, what is in view in these texts. 
The Greek word doulos can be translated slave or sometimes servant or bondservant and often referred to people who had a surprising level of legal and social status in the first century Greco-Roman world. Most were not slaves from their birth or for, the, or for their whole life or because of their race. For instance, the Roman jurist Gaius claimed that most slaves were prisoners of war who actually would have been slaughtered if not made slaves. To be clear, slavery in any sense perverts God's created intention for human beings. And there are some harsh passages we have to deal with. But there's a vast difference between the deplorable wickedness we see in a film like 12 Years a Slave and say what Paul is addressing in the first century Ephesian church. And so if we can get into their day and their culture a bit, if we can unpack their understanding of the word household, uh, we, we gather here today, and we've said this throughout the series, we gather here today, and, and when we think of household, I often think of Brock and Erica and our four kids, Case and Trey, Aiden and Elle. But, but in that day, as the, as the household gathered, you had a, a much more complex understanding of household. It was multi-generational in many ways, and you also had sitting there uh, those who were the, the masters, as the word is used here, and those who were the bondservants. And, and often these were people who were maybe, maybe uh, the bond servants were in financial distress and came under an indentured servitude of the master. But, but, but the teachers, the elders, they're, 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 they're instructing these households in which masters and bond servants are sitting side by side. And Paul's providing some direction into that understanding of household. And, and look at what he says here. He says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. See, Paul's primary ministry wasn't to go after the societal structures in which he found himself in first century Greco-Roman world. Paul's primary ministry was to apply the gospel in every scenario, knowing that once a gospel has transformed a heart, the societal structures will be transformed as well. And so he's giving gospel direction to these bondservants here. And his whole goal is that in them living out honor within the societal structure in which they're walking, that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And now uh, we don't live in the same uh, uh, cultural context of first century Greco-Roman world. We don't live with indentured servitude. When we, when we get into financial trouble with someone else, we don't go and become a bondservant to them. And yet what we can pull from here and what other faithful teachers of the word for centuries have done in pulling from here is to go, how do we understand the principles of this in light of the economic reality, the workplace reality, and which is true of our world? And we see throughout Scripture that God calls us to a sense of honor of those who are over us. To say it clearly and plainly, we're to honor our bosses. Some of you are like, easy. Some of you are like, not so easy. Right? But he goes on here and he makes another point that's important for us. Verse 2, he says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. His point there is, yes, we are, we are family. We are brothers and sisters in the faith. 
But he says, don't use that to not serve well those who are over you in the industrial workplace environment. And I say the same thing to us. If we report in our workplace to other believers that, that we don't use our family relationship to not serve out and steward well what God has called us to serve and to steward in our workplace reality. So we're to honor the authority in the workplace, and, and this has great gospel implications, especially so if we're serving under other believers. Now, how do, how do we go about doing that practically? What does it look like practically for a group of, of, of blood-bought by Jesus, you know, gospel community people living out the calling God has given them in the workplace? Let, let, me, let, me, let me frame it like this. It's about our mind, it's about our mouth, and it's about our motives. It's about our mind, it's about our mouth, and it's about our motives. Let me start with, with our mind. How do you think about the workplace authority in your life? How do you think about them? You're like, you don't want to know. Do you think about them with honoring thoughts? Uh, do, do, do you think about them in ways that are pleasing in the sight of God. Maybe, maybe let's ask it like this. Do you think about your boss in the way Jesus thinks about your boss? It's about the way we think about authority. It's about our mind. It's about our mouth. How do we talk about the authority God has put over us in the workplace? Right? How easy is it to be like five sentences deep of complaints and criticisms of the authority of the bosses, of managers in our life without even realizing we're doing it. You with me? Uh, I remember the first time I learned a hard lesson of, 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 you know, speaking poorly against authority in my life. I was a sixth grader. Why are you laughing? I was a sixth grader, we had a new teacher, and we were all very excited on day one for a new young teacher, thinking, oh, she'll be so fun, she'll be our friend, and she came out guns a-blazing. Like, she came out ready to set the authority, like, who the authority of sixth grade Lowell Middle School was. And so, throughout the course of the year, I don't think Mrs. McDermott liked me very much, I shouldn't say names, uh, none of you are from West Michigan, I don't think she liked me very much, and I didn't like her a whole lot either. And so it's towards the end of the year. We had a fun day of sixth graders. I'm sitting with a buddy. And I just I said, you know what? It's time. I'm going to voice what I really think about Mrs. Mrs. So-and-so. And I'm like, you know what, Jay? My friend's name was Jay. Can you believe her? And I just ran into a tirade. Little Jay is sitting there facing me with eyes like this. And I'm not catching any of the clues. I punched him later for not telling me she was directly behind me. And I just lit into everything I thought about this teacher. To which Mrs. So-and-so calmly behind me goes, well, Brock, it's good to know all that you think about me. Another teacher walked through the door at that time, handed me a detention slip for something else I did. It was a rough, rough day, rough day in sixth grade. But I learned a valuable lesson of how easy it is to talk so disparagingly 
of the authority that God has put over us. Can I just ask this? Do you believe in the providence of God? Do you believe even hard bosses are used for your sanctification? Do you believe God is good? Even though you might think your boss is bad. It's about how we talk about the authority. It's about our mouth. It's about our mind. It's about our mouth. It's about our motives. As we think about the honoring of the industrial authority, of the workplace authority in our life, do we have a motive to serve as unto the Lord? I'm convinced, y'all, one of the greatest opportunities we get as gospel people, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, is in the motives we bring into the workplace. We should look vastly different. Not, not only in how hard we're working, but the manner in which we're carrying out that hard work. Oh God, give us gospel motives for that. That we would honor God as we honor the authority he has put over us. And so as this book is nearing the end, and as Paul is laying out some specific guidance of how we're to interact with different parts of the household, he comes to this section here and he says, household, honor the widows in your midst. And household, honor the elders in your midst. And, and household, honor the workplace authority. Honor the masters in your midst. And in doing so, as we seek to live that out from a heart of honor, God is honored in the process. Church, honor your elders in the church and your bosses at work. Amen? Amen. Hey, would you stand to your feet as you do? I want to pray for us. Um, but, but before I pray, let me say this. Um, as this book at times is so practical, so, so practical and in speaking into the different uh, ways that people are to interact, I want us to hear this before I pray. This isn't about us just being good moral people. This isn't about us just trying to figure out how do we have a healthy organization. This is about the reality I started with and I want to end with. That people, we were people separated from a holy God by our sin. We were hopeless. We were dead. And there's nothing we could do to make ourselves spiritually alive or good moral people. But God in his goodness, he sent his son Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for that sin, who went to the cross, who, put, who paid for your sin and my sin, who paid for the thing I got a detention for in sixth grade. So that we could be free from the bondage of sin. And he invites us to himself by faith. And the moment we put our faith in him, we have a personal relationship with God. Praise the Lord, right? We, we have a personal relationship with God. But now listen to this. Our personal relationship with God isn't to be lived out individualistically. God in his wisdom called all of us who now have a relationship with him, his spirit indwelling us into this beautiful thing called the church to be lived out in community. And God in his goodness has not left it up to our wisdom as to what that looks like, but he's given us in his word how this household is to behave to his glory. That's what we want to be about, amen? And so God, would you help us to that end? Guide us into truth. Help us to live out what it means for us to be family. God, uh, we ask you for that, that you would be glorified for your glory and for the good of your people. We pray it in Jesus' name.